Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, president of Seamless Docs Federal, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. Okay, Danny, uh, we're back for episode 11. We're now in the, I don't know what you call this, the second decile of, uh, of Gov Actually. If anyone should know, it should be us. I really don't know the but, answer to that um, question. But there's someone who might be able to answer that question. She's an uh, esteemed academic, but more important, uh, a someone with deep experience and actually running uh, some very, very critical, important government operations. You'll You'll know what I'm getting at when I when I introduce you to Susan Dudley, who is the director of the George Washington University of Regulatory Studies Center and distinguished professor of practice in the Trachtenberg School of Public Policy and Public Administration. But more importantly, uh, for us and the Gov Actually crowd, former OIRA administrator and also a former um, uh, federal employee at the. Uh, OMB and at EPA, is that correct? And there was one other, was it CFTC? Yes. Yeah, it was CFTC, which is very cool. Well, and then you you broke the rule about using an acronym. Oh, I'm sorry. So, but now we can let Susan. Actually, that's your rule. Oh, that's, I never that's had my that. rule. So now we can let Susan uh, fix that and, and tell us what OIRA is. Oh, right, OIRA. Which, by the way, before you do that, there's a lot of conversation about, you know, the, the deep state, the government deep state. And I think if people were to like have this image of the government deep state, it would be this small group of very powerful people sitting in close proximity to the White House, creating rules that aren't um, that aren't like weighed in on by elected officials. So, with that introduction, you <laughs> want to tell us? <laughs> do you want to tell uh, us pretty intense. The Office of I feel like there should be music yeah, exactly. behind that, like the, you know? the Jaws theme. We'll have to get the Fed Scoop people to put a soundtrack in. Right. Um, I think actually, if you Google obscure but powerful office, you might, OIRA still might come up right. as one of the first offices. So it stands for the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. Um, it's part of the Office of Management and Budget. And it was actually founded, um, it started in 1981. So we're about to celebrate its 36th birthday. Um, it was created by President Carter and the Paperwork Reduction Act. Um, so that act passed in 1980, created an office to review all the information collections that the government did to ensure that the public just wasn't inundated with burdensome information, you know, requests to fill out forms, et cetera, from a lot of different agencies without them knowing what each other were doing. So, so an example would be a tax form or a form to get your passport or things like that? That's right. Okay. That's right. And you may be getting lots of different forms from different agencies asking you to fill out the same information. And that was the goal of this act passed 32 years ago, 37 years ago, was to try to minimize that and create an office that coordinated it and oversaw that. And um, when President Reagan was elected, he said, this looks like an important office. I think I'm going to do more with it. And he also gave the office responsibility for reviewing the regulations of the federal government. So, so, so before yeah. that, there wasn't a central review capacity? That's right. Each so agency did it themselves? Each agency issued their regulations on their own. So presidents issued executive orders. Carter had executive orders that said agencies, when regulating, mm -hmm. make sure your regulations, um, that you've issued the most 
cost-effective regulation that you can and that you examine the benefits and costs, but there were no checks to make sure the agencies actually did that. So when, when a, a lot of criticism about agency regulation is that there's just so much of it and there's, you know, it's, it's overrunning um, different parts of society, it seems that actually OIRA would be a, a, an incredible check on that. It would seem that uh, that, that, wouldn't be, that that would be something that would hold it back. And that's um, that's one of the the goals of OIRA. So, um, President Reagan's executive order s told agencies to again um, look at alternatives, regulatory alternatives, choose the one that maximizes net benefits, and to send those regulations and the analysis supporting them to OMB for review. Um, so OMB has been doing that for 36 years now, President. Clinton in 1993, he rescinded that executive order and issued another one, um, but it did essentially the same thing. It also required agencies to do that same net benefit, that benefit cost balancing. Um, one thing he did is he said not every single regulation from executive agencies have to go through OIRA. He said only those that are significant. So that reduced the number of regulations from possibly 3,000 a year down to 300 a year that OIRA reviews. Um, but similar procedures and um, analytical requirements. And President Clinton's order is still in place today. So that has lasted through President George W. Bush and President Obama. So you have three presidents with very different um, philosophies with respect to regulation, and all of them have relied on the same executive order. So just lifting it up even a little bit more basic, just a couple of different examples of regulatory actions, because there's like there's legislation, right? Congress requires things to happen, um, and then the executive branch is carrying out those legislation. And sometimes I think it can be confusing to the public and even to people inside government with expertise where the law ends and where the regulation begins. Yeah, that's a great point. People don't tend not to understand the difference between legislation and regulation. And in part, that's because a regulation, once it is issued, it does have the force of law. But under our Constitution, agencies can't regulate unless they have delega authority delegated to them from Congress. So, so Congress will pass a statute, let's say the Clean Air Act. That's the one I was going to choose, Clean Air <laughs> yeah. Act. Yeah. So it passes the Clean Air Act. Um, the most recent amendments to that were 1990. And there are a lot of different sections of the act. But for example, it says protect public health with an adequate margin of safety. And that delegates a lot of leeway to the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, Congress also says revise those standards that protect public health with an adequate margin of safety every five years. Um, so EPA interprets that. They issue regulations that take thousands and thousands of pages of analysis and preamble um, to issue those regulations, still based on the authority granted in 1990. So I have a question for you, which is, if I understand, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, the, um, the role of OIRA. Uh, is to review these regulations, and I'm going to assume from from experience. I'll just, you know, just to put it all on the table. I was in OIRA for a few years, so uh, so this is a potentially loaded question. But I know that they do um, uh, cost benefit analysis to understand what are the benefits of a particular regulation versus what are the costs. And and in theory, only regulations where the benefits exceed the cost should go forward. The legislation itself, using the Clean Air Act, does that also 
have a cost-benefit assessment, or is it too general of a level to have a robust cost-benefit, and it's really in the regulation where the nitty-gritty happens? Yeah, Congress rarely does a cost-benefit, or in my world we say benefit-cost analysis, at the same level that agencies they rarely do a quantitative benefit-cost analysis. So Congress does tend to pass legislation with broad goals, like clean air or affordable care, but then they delegate to the agencies the responsibility for implementing that through regulation, and that's when the analysis gets done. Sometimes there are some statutes that say do it without considering costs or, or analyzing benefits. Um, other statutes allow that. So there's a, I assume there's a range. Um, you take something like the Clean Air Act. Um, there's a, a limited footprint of regulations, potentially a small footprint that would technically be consistent with the direction Congress gave the EPA to regulate. And then there's extensive regulations. And is it correct to say that EPA has discretion in terms of whether they're going to do a, a small footprint of regulation, you know, not too intense in terms of the requirements to on businesses and others to keep air clean, and then a very um, aggressive set of regulations with with a, with a heavy dose of requirements. They have the EPA has the legal uh, discretion to decide where in that continuum they land. That's right. So a lot of legislation is vague enough that agencies have a lot of flexibility. Um, some are, some are can be very prescriptive, but as a rule, most are are, are quite general. Is is part of the reason why legislation has gotten so big is, uh, you know, why they're, you know, the Dodd-Frank is 1,700 pages is because they're trying to avoid letting the agencies write the regulations? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, there's a lot of concern that they're, that they're not detailed enough, that Congress is still passes very broad authority mm -hmm. and leaves it to, you know, your opening comment about the unelected officials and agencies right. to, to write laws without the checks and balances that you get from Congress. Um, the, um, sometimes the, it's, they can be very detailed and pass, and those details include very tight deadlines, which also limit agencies' ability to do the analysis to, to make sure that um, there are net benefits. There's, um, and this may be getting too much into the weeds, the, the courts, the third branch this of government is also. About it's the about weeds. the weeds? Yeah, right. All right, yeah. I'm rolling my sleeves we, up there. We encourage that, actually. <laughs> All right, well, in, more into the weeds. We have our third branch of government, the judicial branch. I don't think that's very far in the weeds. No, <laughs> okay, not okay. yet. Wait, no. oh, yeah, hold on, hold on. <laughs> um, and they, of course, play a role in regulation, too. So um, their role is to, well, let's see, back up just a second, regulations are often litigated. So let's just quickly go through the regulatory process. Congress delegates authority to the agencies. Agencies will draft a regulation doing the analysis. They submit it to this obscure but powerful office, OIRA. Um, OIRA will review it, checking both um, the, the analysis, so the regulatory impact analysis, but also coordinating among other agencies in the government, including the White House. Um, and let me just pause there for a second. And that really means a wire wears several, several hats. One is the, the green eye shades looking at the analysis, and it's what President Obama called providing a dispassionate and analytical second opinion um, for the agencies. Um, a second important one is the coordination with other parts of the government. And that gets back to what I was talking about earlier with um, the Paperwork Reduction Act. Just like other parts of OMB, um, OIRA's role is to 
both is to make sure that there isn't duplication and overlap and that one agency's regulations don't interfere with another one's. Um, and then a third hat is they are part of the executive branch, uh, um, the executive office of the president. And that's, so they're working closely with political officials in the White House. So the OIRA staff, which is um, under 50 people, so it's a very small career staff, mostly career, except for the administrator and a couple um, others. Um, but they do work closely with folks in the West Wing. And the West Wing people learn early in a presidency that regulations are often where the action is. Because it may, you know, you can struggle with Congress to get them to pass a new piece of legislation, et cetera. But regulations are something that the president can start putting his imprint on right away. Is, isn't that yeah. the pen and the president, and President yeah. Obama's yeah, the right, phone right. and the pen? I'll use the phone and the pen. Yeah. And yeah, the pen executive is exi order yeah, right. is the other one. Mm -hmm. So how thinking? So you were the OIR administrator during the the Bush administration, uh, the the second Bush, Bush forty three. One question that I that we've been tackling a little bit on the podcast is trying to level set. Um, how much does government shift by administration? So for example, Dan and I've made the argument on the podcast. There are certain activities that just don't change all that much. You know, food safety inspectors are still going to mm -hmm. likely do a similar way of approaching the job, whether regardless of whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. And there's a whole host of different activities. And I, you know, I, the, the government's big, and I actually think in most cases, which are going to the radar screen of, of the media and, and are on the national consciousness, the government operates pretty consistently um, regardless of administration. But regulations often come up as a hot topic where you, where you somewhat expect uh, a shift in approach did you, do you, do you, have you, as a, as a student of it and also a participant, do you think that that's right? Is there, uh, through the lens of, a, of an OIRA analyst, do they tend to see major shifts in their job footprint and how they approach it from administration to administration? Well, I think it's interesting that the guidelines that govern OIRA's job, um, they have stayed remarkably consistent since OIRA was formed. So every president has, has directed agencies and OIRA to oversee agencies to, to as you t we all talked about this, to make sure that new regulations do more good than harm, that you do the analysis, you do that net benefit test. Every president has also said, let's also look at the regulations that are in place, the existing regulations, and let's see if they're working as intended. Um, so, and the procedures have been remarkably the same. So. Um, the submitting the regulations to OIRA, et cetera. Plus, the procedures for regulations more broadly have been the same since 1946. The Administrative Procedure Act of 1946 said um, you have to, a, regulations have to go to the public for notice and comment, and those comments have to be taken into account before, and there has to be a record that you've built before issuing a regulation. And that, maybe, let me get, I'll loop back to the judicial review so that it didn't look like I was so not in the weeds with the judicial <laughs> branch. Um, that plays a very important role because um, the, especially with the APA and the requirement that regulations be based on the record, that once regulations are final, they are often litigated in court. And mm -hmm. courts will regularly um, send them back to the agencies to redo. Sometimes they will um, allow them to stay in effect 
while the agency is revisiting something. Other times they will stop and say, you can't implement this regulation. So the courts have a very important role. What's, a, what's, a, what's your favorite uh, great example of, of, of that, of where the courts have come in and dramatically upset an, a regulatory apple cart? Um, well, let's see, one very important one, I think, for us now is um, the Mass v. EPA decision. I think that came out in 2007, spring of 2007, maybe. Um, and there, it, the, the Supreme Court, um, in an opinion written by Justice Scalia, said um, greenhouse gas emissions, so carbon, et cetera, um, are, they, this Clean Air Act does cover them. Up until then, EPA had said, you know, we don't really have authority because it doesn't fit in any of these pieces of the Clean Air Act, so we don't have authority to regulate CO2 and other greenhouse gas emissions. And the court said, well, yeah, you do. If you determine that it endangers public health mm -hmm. or welfare, you do. And that, that has paved the way, without Congress having to act on climate change, has paved the way for EPA to issue regulations under, as I say, this statute. Often it's under statutory language that was written in the 70s before anyone was concerned about warming. I actually have a, a, an answer to that question that's much less significant, but <laughs> uh, but a, just a quick anecdote, because I think I have this, I don't know if I'm the only person who's ever experienced this, but it was a unique moment, which is I was in OIRA, this is going back to the 1990s, I was uh, part of the uh, I was I was a desk officer, which was a you know basically these different desk officers get assigned different agencies to review their regulations. So I had uh, civil rights regulations as part of my portfolio, and in particular re regulations on the Americans with Disabilities Act. So you know the the slope of the wheelchair ramp, things like that. You know what what the what buildings needed to be retrofitted for an elevator versus which didn't. All kinds of of access issues, and. I went from OIRA to the Justice Department. I got a new job, and my job was trial attorney in enforcing um, Americans with Disability Act regulations. And I remember in one case that I was working on, at issue was language in the regulation, in a, in a recently issued regulation, a preamble to the regulation, which the judge found in his finding was ambiguous. And I had been the desk officer just months earlier who had approved that <laughs> regulation. So, you know, it wasn't like I could point to those darn people over at the at the other end at the, during the rulemaking process who had messed this up. I was involved in that too. So I had, I got to see in, in real life that, in particular, when you're doing an enforcement action of a regulation, because not every um, activity that the, that the government gets involved in enforcing is enforcing the statute. Sometimes you're enforcing non-compliance with, with the regulations oh, yeah. that spell often. out. That's a, often a part of it. This was the case, and a dispute was whether the regulation was clear enough so that the parties being regulated knew what to do, knew what compliance meant. And that's a big sticking point with respect to regulations. It's, it's the cost of having to comply, but it's also sometimes the regulations themselves are messy, not well-written potentially, and therefore it raises the cost of compliance because the regulated community doesn't know what to do. And that was, a, that was something that, that I experienced. I assume that that's a lot of litigation activity. Well, another one actually is ambiguity in the statute itself. 
and this is really where I was going into the weeds, so you'll mm-hmm. tell me if I'm weedy enough. Yeah, I um, see. So if a statute is written in a way that's ambiguous, there's something called the Chevron Doctrine that says that courts should defer to agencies. So if the statute is clear and the agency, whatever the agency does, doesn't matter, the courts should go back to the, should defer to the statute. But if not, um, agencies are given deference. So the agency's interpretation of the statute, even if it is not the best interpretation of the statute, is what wins. So that when you had asked, are, is Congress spending more time, is, are mm-hmm. co- bills longer? Right. One reason you might make it longer is that there wouldn't be ambiguity that would allow the agency to have its deference, although often I think Congress quite likes that ambiguity. Mm-hmm. I think they like the ability to say, um, I pa- go home to their constituents and say, I passed this legislation that will provide affordable care or clean air. And then when the agency, the actual implementation of it comes through regulations and their constituents are, you know, they see that there's a cost or they're burdened or they don't like it, well, then Congress gets to get up and again say, those unelected bureaucrats are causing all these problems. So it's kind of a win-win for Congress to draft the vague legislation with high you know, goals that we all agree with, but then leave the details to the agencies and blaming them. Well, that's one that's issue. one of the themes that I was hoping to tease out in this discussion, which is um, this question of when when an administration comes in and says we have to deregulate, we have to reduce burden and, and kill and and, uh, and 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 eliminate job killing regulations. How much of that is is possible under these legislative frameworks that exist? Um, is it realistic to expect that you can achieve that goal just by reshaping regulations or do the laws that sit on top of them, are they going to continue to drive these types of requirements no matter what you do with the regulations? Why don't we take a break and we come back, we can kind of delve into that question. Gov Actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. And Seamless Docs, the fastest, easiest way to move all your administrative data collection processes to the cloud. Seamless Docs helps make government beautiful. All right, so we're back talking to Susan Dudley. And before we, we continue on, Dan, I've given it thought in terms of you said, what is the, uh, you know, what is 11, 12? What does that mean? What is the terminology now that we're in the second tense? I think pre-teens. Oh, in the is, pre-teens. Yeah, well, I have a pre-teen at home, so that's what made me right. think of it. But it took me the whole segment. I can't think that quickly right. on my feet. Well, someone enjoyed the fact that we were comparing ourselves to the Police Academy franchise and, and up to the Fast and Furious. Uh, I think we're heading towards the Fast and Furious numbers. Yes, and we have a, a streak going of always mentioning a movie in every podcast. So you just did it. I needed to do The that. box is checked. We can return okay. to talking All about right, regulations. Good. And Susan's happy now because yes. we'll talk about regulation. So Susan, when we left off, we talked about, we, I, I posed a question in terms of just really trying to get uh, under the hood, if you will, in terms of reducing regulatory burden. Um, and that's an aspiration that, that, that seems to be consistent, administration to administration. But how much of that is achievable, given that these regulations are in many ways an extension of a congressional requirement that sits above it um, in, the, in the form of a statute? Um, so... Every president has asked agencies to 
to look at regulations that are in effect and to see whether there may be ways to clean them up. So every president has wanted to try to reduce burden that way, as well as issuing new ones. Um, president Trump has um, come into office campaigning on deregulation. Um, he's um, made dramatic promises of how much he'll cut regulations. Um, I, I've joked that he, he hasn't learned um, the, the method of under-promising and over-delivering quite. Um, so working with Congress, he's already um, eliminated, he's using the Congressional Review Act. He has signed disapprovals of 13 regulations issued towards the end of the Obama administration. So um, that is the, 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 the the Congressional Review Act had been used only once before to overturn a regulation. So this is the most use it's ever had. But, but I'm curious about the Congressional Review Act because if regulations are a set of instructions that um, are designed to implement law, the Congressional Review Act then says, but we want to have the ability potentially to review those instructions. And if struck down, they're not the administration is not allowed to regulate around right. those areas. That's right. Yeah. So it's like a, it's like a, a law that says you can't think about this law in that way. Right. That's exactly right. So, um, so agencies, as we've said, they they issue regulations under the delegated authority that's pretty broad, and under the Congressional Review Act, they give themselves under expedited procedures and with short periods of time, the ability to say no, that's not what we meant. Or even if that is what the Congress in 1970 meant, that's not what we, we mean. And they can disapprove those. Both houses of Congress, a joint resolution goes to the president's desk. And if he signs it, the agency cannot issue anything that's substantially similar. Um, so the reason it hasn't been used much before is that you, it, you don't see it used because when the president whose rule it is Congress is overturning, when it lands on his desk, he won't sign it. In fact, President Trump, uh, President Obama did um, veto several resolutions of disapproval that landed on his desk. So really, the only time that you might expect to see it used is during a transition like this, where it's a different president mm -hmm. in power, and he will then sign the... the One quick question. When you, when you do that, when you basically nullify a regulation, does that create a vacuum where there are now some confusion in terms of what to do or what to, to not to do? I mean, I remember when I was at the IRS, there was a, a process in place that was uh, somewhat controversial and, and, and somewhat broken, and I stopped it uh, when I arrived. Uh, but then that created a vacuum in terms of, okay, so now what do we do? The old process may have been broken, but it was a process. Now we don't have a process. So we had to quickly figure out, in the absence of it, what to do, and does that is that a potential, not risk. I don't want to say risk, but a potential set of to dos that now exist when 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 Congress repeals and the president signs the uh, the termination of particular regulatory activity. I expect that it is a consideration when Congress is deciding whether to vote to disapprove something. These regulations are regulations that have been issued since um, June, mid June. Oh, so they're new. So they're new regulations. Right. So they probably, I don't know if any of them had actually been in effect yet. Uh -huh. So it's clear what would happen. It's whatever was, was previous. Um, it may be that Congress takes that into account in deciding whether to disapprove. For example, I think there probably were regulations issued at the end of the Bush administration that the incoming Democratic Congress and President Obama really would have preferred something else. But getting back to 
Dan's point that if they had disapproved those, the agency couldn't do, couldn't just tweak it in a way and make it more palatable to the new administration. So mm -hmm. it didn't appeal. Um, so that, that would have been available to the administration just as easily would have been to tweak the regulation, maybe reissue the regulation. So by, um, who, who takes the initial Congressional Review Act action? It's the Congress. It's Congress, yeah. And, and it so, could be either house. And so the president could have vetoed it with the idea being that he wanted to preserve right. the authority and responsibility right. to, to his mm -hmm. side of Pennsylvania. So when, um, you know, to Danny's question about how feasible is it to get rid of a lot of regulations, um, the Congressional Review Act is a very swift way to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, in the first couple months, we, we've seen these 13 regulations that um, would just not be pursued. Um, to go, to do it through the, no, the rulemaking process is much more cumbersome, because you go through the notice and comment process that we briefly discussed, um, and which takes at least a year to, to develop your record, um, go through OMB review, get, get public comment, issue a, you know, revise your regulation, issue a final regulation, and then what you've got are two separate records, one supporting the initial regulation and then one supporting the revised or the revised regulation. So the, just as and, the Administrative Procedures Act and relevant executive orders require this long process of development and notice and comment and the opportunity for the industry to engage, that's the same when you yep. take that big regulation now, try to downsize it, you go through that same process yep. again. It takes just as long. And the point I was getting at, at the end, you've got two records, so that's bound to be sued because the people who mm -hmm. liked your first regulation mm -hmm. will sue. So um, it's likely to be tied up in the courts for a while. Hmm. So this new, so so we have a new president, um, new a new executive order, order yeah. on regulations. We'll talk about that, it requires, as at the very exactly. highest level, yeah. the headline is the the two for one. But why don't you give us the the lowdown? On yeah, it. it has it has two parts. People have referred to it as a regulatory budget, but it's not really a pure regulatory budget. Um, so it's got one part that is this, yeah, two for one. Um, which means for every new regulation, agencies have to identify two regulations to remove. Um, and then the second part is that the net cost of the new, the, the ins and the outs, has to be zero for the rest of 27, fiscal 2017. And that wasn't a previous requirement? Because when I introduced the topic earlier, I said, I, I made the point that, that I thought that all regulations essentially had to have a benefit cost analysis. Yeah, I didn't that explain the, that okay. well. So it's the the cost of the new regulation has to be completely offset by the cost of the regulations you're removing. Oh, okay. So, that, so that's why it has that budget feel. That budget feel. It's like feel. an offset. So it's an incremental budget. And I think that is much more binding than the two for one part, largely because the new regulation, so maybe we should call it one in, one out. That's what the administration is calling it. Okay. So the ins. Are, um, can have, are only significant regulations. There are about 300 of those a year. The outs can be anything. So they can be small, oh, you know, okay. small regulations. They can even be a guidance document. As long as it has some costs that you're removing, that counts as an so out. So at a minimum, the Code of Federal Regulations, which has all the regs, will be sh shorter. Because you're pulling, well, not really because maybe the new regs has longer pages. But at the end of the day, even if the regulation is one sentence long, it still counts as a regulation. Mm -hmm. okay. and, and for this test, it's only cost to cost? It's, exactly. So you could have a regulation that created uh, unlimited benefit, but if it cost more than what you're getting rid of, that would 
that would not be okay. Mm-hmm. Well, unlimited so, benefit. Write me a regulation that looks like that. Well, I guess one man's unlimited benefit might be someone else's unlimited cost. Exactly. So, uh, exactly. Yeah, so that's right. So um, the guidance all insists that the net benefit test still matters and that agencies, even though the new executive order just talks about offsetting costs, agencies still, in looking at new regulations to bring in or regulations to remove or modify, still should be doing that benefit cost test so that they're still trying to maximize net benefits, but they now have this budget constraint that overlays it. I think it's actually this one in, one out or two for one is interesting because if I'm understanding it correctly, it it drives the agency a bit to think about regulations as a portfolio. So as they're thinking, okay, we need to move down a particular road to, to, uh, to develop a regulation, but now we have this, these other requirements. Now you're looking at your whole regulatory footprint, and I assume that if you're really embracing the policy that the regulations you're eliminating are related to an illogical policy connection to the one that you're issuing so that you're right-sizing mm-hmm. the footprint overall. Yeah. And I, I don't remember that being an emphasis point in previous executive orders and previous regulatory reviews. Maybe it was. I, I'll ask you. Is that is that new or is that, would you argue, is same old, same old from previous uh, executive orders? I think there's always been a concern about the accumulation of regulation. Uh, Michael Mandel and Diana Carew of the Progressive Policy Institute use an analogy of pebbles tossed in a stream. Any individual pebble may not affect the flow, but when if you keep tossing them into the stream, then that may actually stop the flow of the stream or divert it. And that's the concern. And President Clinton and Reagan and Carter all had that concern. What this new order does is it, and all of them said, let's look at those regulations. But this order actually provides a metric to measure how, you know, there's never been the incentive to do it, even though everyone agrees we need to look back at existing regulations. Um, I've always thought that we need to look back at existing regulations, not just to know what their costs were, but also the benefits. We want to know when we're estimating unlimited benefits. Are Are they real? Did we really achieve them? And... There's no, there's never been an incentive to do, to do that. I'm, Unlike on the budget side, I mean, Danny, you've been, both of you, did that on the budget side. Mm-hmm. You have to do that, or you don't get appropriations. Well, what's interesting yeah. is the scoring. I was thinking about that. That the scoring, the budget scoring, is really kind of the benefit cost yeah. uh, analysis that legislation has to go through. But scoring doesn't go back. People don't go back and say, "How did we do on scoring that bill five years ago?" There's very little kind of. Mm. Uh, you know, analysis to determine the relative quality of that scoring. I wonder if that's the case with the benefit cost analysis on regulations as well. Yeah, we, we rarely go like back and like look. It sounds like something that maybe uh, the George Washington <laughs> University Regulatory Studies Center should be doing. Indeed, yeah. and we have. We actually have a lot of, we've, we have looked a lot at how to do a better job of retrospective evaluation of regulations. It, it's an important problem that everybody recognizes is, but it's tough. But I mean, so, it's not only incentives aren't there, but it's it's hard to do analytically. So you have all this expertise, all this experience, and clearly this passion for this subject. And by the way, Oiranians are the most passionate <laughs> people about what they do. They're like the SEAL Team Six of bureaucrats. <laughs> you know, they they just love this stuff. Um, this approach to to 
uh, and neutral of the politics or the personalities, do you, do you like this approach? What would you do to make this approach better? If you were in charge and you could come up with a approach, if you were in charge again and you could uh, come up with an approach, what, what would you do? How would you manage this um, the regulatory bed? How would you work on the, the stream bed with all these pebbles? Assuming you it, think there are lots of pebbles in it. I <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess if I would, I think that this offset requirement, this requirement to look back as you look forward is valuable. And it does um, impose a budget constraint that we have in every other aspect of our lives um, on the agency's benefit cost analysis is an essential tool. But we've been using it for decades, and it hasn't slowed the, you know, the growth in regulations and maybe that's because every new regulation really does provide benefits that exceed cost but that gets us to the pebbles every pebble on its own may look good um, but when you when they accumulate it's a problem so I think um, I'm not sh the two for one I think it adds complications without possibly adding a lot of benefit but I understand that's a it was a campaign slogan and um, so we did actually something similar in the Obama administration with real estate. Mm -hmm. When I was uh, controller of OMB, we, we did something called freeze the footprint, which was you had to, if you're going to acquire any new square footage, like a new lease or a new building, yeah. you had to uh, dispose of an equally sized facility. And one of the feedback points as we were issuing freeze the footprint was the same concern. Like it seems somewhat arbitrary uh, there was it was a, a double-sided coin. It seemed somewhat arbitrary and could lead to some false positives in terms of the right answer. But at the same time, the messaging on it was very powerful, and so that that there's a globe like the beacon uh, that we're trying to follow is to try to slow the growth of the the real property inventory because we already have more than we need. So it, kind of the devil was a little bit in the details of how it was executed. Actually, after I left OMB, they went to reduce the footprint. And yeah. I said, you know, it's, it's not enough just to freeze it. We actually right. have to, I think you were at GSA when that yeah. happened. That's a great analogy. Um, it, and one of the things I'd say for, for this one, the executive order says 2017, it's a one-for-one -one offset for costs. Um, in future fiscal years, the OMB budget director decides. So he could decide to shrink the footprint, or he could say, well, we need to grow it a little bit, but still within constraints. In the UK, they have a one-in, well, they started with a one-in, one-out for their regulations. Then they went to one-in, two-out, and now it's one-in, three-out. So they found that it was easier to find the cost savings than they anticipated largely because and to get those cost savings without reducing benefits and it was through a lot of streamlining mm -hmm. things like um your um give a plug for your company because oh, i think yeah, that's exactly yeah. the kind of thing that thank you yeah. well thank you we're going to give a plug at the beginning in the middle of the end of the thing anyway but yes that's the kind of thing seamless docs does and i'm sure boston consulting helps with that and, and i know that you guys provide the academic benefit and and then scoop and about Fed group. Scoop yes and exactly right what else so, can wow. we plug? Yes. so so we're running on time i want to ask a, a, my last question of you um in thinking about what regulations to cut I, my theory of the case is that, I want to see if you agree with it, is that an area that's potentially ripe for uh, potential positive cutting with, with positive impact is areas where the regulations are old and technology has caught up with them in terms of now the way in which we operate from a safety standpoint and from all kind of dimensions of compliance 
there's less of a need for the stereo instructions of you must do A, B, C, D, mm-hmm. and more of an opportunity to set some basic performance uh, standard, and technology can help drive a different level of compliance so that we want to give some flexibility back to industry and back to the regulated community because because technology has enabled new and interesting things and we don't regulations curbing that. So that's, I, I would, if I was at an agency or at, at OIRA again, I would say maybe this is an area to really build out. I just wanted to get your opinion if that resonates with you or there are other areas that you think are uh, should be right in the in the bullseye for where we think about downsizing regulations. Yeah. I, I think that's a great area. Um, another one might be, and this is probably related, where the ongoing costs are high. Um, so a regulation that has that required an investment in very expensive equipment, that's probably not going to be a good candidate because even if you remove it, you've already made that investment. Um, whereas ongoing operating costs, and that could fit right in with your technology. Their operating costs of filling out these forms or requiring all this paperwork when indeed you could do it all in a streamlined way online now, so it's not as necessary. Another one that might be valuable is there's, there are greater efforts to, um, to align regulations internationally. So finding where other countries are doing things in a, um, a streamlined way. So harmonization. Yes, I know that, that could that's be. That's one that's both people some industries like, but they also hate because there's a certain way of protecting markets Yes, keeping a separate regulation right. here in the United States versus Europe or vice versa. And OMB's guidelines actually specifically talks about the international regulations and says to the extent you're saving money, yes, you can count it as an out. But if harmonizing with another country increases costs, it's it's an in. And so, Yeah, and it's interesting. How do you... This is where things get interesting. How do you measure those costs? Is it you know directly priced to the consumer, or are there other costs of displacement of workers, et cetera, et cetera? So yeah, I imagine that that's in a few a, seconds. Well, in Canada, it's just administrative burden, so it's just the mm-hmm. cost of filling out forms. In the UK, it's compliance cost to business. In the US, OIRA says it is the opportunity cost. So that is really the bottom line mm-hmm. consumer value. So it, it was the 1990s, the last time I was in OIRA, but. I would predict that if I returned tomorrow, I would find that there would still be similar questions that we were confronted with, which is the challenge of a good benefit-cost analysis. I'm sure it's been 17 or 18 years since I've been there. I would imagine they haven't perfected that yet. Yeah, sir, not perfected. It has improved. I mean, I think agencies really have come a long way, but it is always that forward-looking analysis. I think they're going to start have to fo- turn their focus and shift resources to analyzing the regulations that are in place and what effect they actually had. As a general rule, just quickly, are costs easier to quantify than benefits? Is that a general rule of thumb or no? Um, Some costs are. Compliance costs probably are. And benefits can be harder and harder to measure, too, after the fact. Um, But there are a lot of costs that are hard to quantify. For example, if you ban a product, there's no compliance costs, no forms to fill out or anything. But it could be hugely costly to the people who, you know, if it's a valuable medical device, for example. Could eliminate jobs and industries and, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah. So um, I I think what's interesting is that uh, the results of the last election has had a very important uh, impact for people to gain a a valuable civics lesson in the nature of the electoral college, 
what an executive order is, uh, what, where the filibuster came from. And I think one of the, um, one of the other unexpected uh, outcomes is uh, how interesting for many people the issue of regulations are. Um, you've helped us understand why it is such a um, why it is such a uh, subject of passion for so many people within deep within the um, within the federal government who work on these things. Yeah, I, I think regulations is is definitely a, a hot button issue because um, the way it's framed publicly, it's framed around jobs and economic growth, and it sim symbolizes in many ways. Uh, people's frustrations with government, you know, kind of this concept that 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 we're overregulate, the government overregulates, um, and uh, and doesn't have good discipline and and diet when it comes to those types of activities. That symbolism, I think, is very important to um, to try to get to a place where we have the right understanding of where regulations make sense, where they don't, and that we really are at the right level of accountability to make sure that we're right sizing those regulations. Susan, thank you so much for joining us today and really appreciate your, uh, your being a, a, a listener, a friend of, uh, of the GovActually podcast and, and for your tremendous research and continuing to raise the bar of people's understanding of the subject. Well, this was fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to GovActually. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at us at GovActuallyPod or you can write to Danny at Danny at GovActually.com or to me at Dan at GovActually.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to GovActually Podcast on iTunes and write a review. That's how we get pushed up further and more people can hear about us.